If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Friday, July the 26th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. My guest today in our studio here on the campus of Stanford University is Guy Benson. Guy Benson is a Fox News contributor and the host of The Guy Benson Show, which you can listen to on local radio, Sirius XM channels uh, 450. Uh, You can watch it on foxnation.com. Where else can we find the show, Guy? The Fox News app, it's there. People can go to iTunes and get the podcast as well. And it runs uh, 3 to 6 p.m. East Coast time, Monday through Friday, weekends, the greatest hits of the past week, right? That's exactly right. And then fitting in TV work all around the show, including this very evening as well. So they keep me busy over there at Fox. Guy Benson also serves as political editor of townhall.com. In 2015, Guy was named to Forbes 30 Under 30 Law and Policy list, and in 2017 landed on HuffPost's roster for the 25 top millennial broadcasters in American news and politics. Guy's a returning media fellow here at the Hoover Institution. In fact, he's been here this week broadcasting out of the studio. Hey, thanks for not wrecking the place. I'm doing my best, although I'm coming back for the full week extravaganza in November, so maybe my destruction will occur then. But for now, I'm behaving. Good deal. Well, Guy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on. It's been a busy week, to say the least. Let's start this off, though, before we get into Bob Mueller and the other shenanigans in March this week. Uh, If you go to GuyBenson.org and uh, read up on you, you proudly call yourself a millennial conservative. And this title interests me because millennial is obviously a reference to your date of birth. You were born in 1985, so you're part of the millennial generation. That means you were born at the beginning of Ronald Reagan's second term. You would have been uh, driving uh, for the first time around the time of 9-11, not that the two are tied together. Uh, you would have been uh, out of college for just a couple of years when Obama rose and the stimulus package came along and the Tea Party began its climb. Uh, but I'm curious about this. Growing up. Um, in the millennial generation, how does a millennial how does a millennial end up on the conservative side of things? Is it a family function? Is it an education function? Is it a work function? How did you end up on the right? Well, it's interesting, Bill, because my parents were not terribly political or all that conservative necessarily. I think my mother's family is more traditionally Republican. Mm-hmm. My father's side of the family is anything but. And home for you is where? Well, that's also a complicated question. I was I was born overseas. I grew up much of my early childhood overseas mm-hmm. um, and then moved to the New York area, which is where my parents are both from. Okay. Living in New York, living in New Jersey. I went to college in Chicago. Northwestern. Northwestern. Yeah. Go Cats. Playing Stanford to start the season in a yes. couple, couple yes. weeks. So I'm excited for that. And then I moved to D.C. about nine years ago. So I've lived in a number of large cities uh, around the world. And as I said, my mother's family, more kind of traditional Republican my father's side of the family, very liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so they would be kind of in like the, maybe the Elizabeth Warren track, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them over on that side. So I grew up very interested in politics, international politics, because I was living overseas. Right. And I remember sort of one of the early moments where I had to kind of try to figure out what my own affiliations were. It came in the 1996 presidential election. I was in middle school, living in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. and they had us sort of do a mock election in the school where we had to join a campaign for 
Bob Dole or Bill Clinton. I, I think Ross Perot was was involved in '96 yes. as well, and the, one of the local papers had put together a where they stand on the issues chart. So mm -hmm. it was Dole and Clinton, and then maybe 12 to 20 issues where they had a paragraph summarizing what they believed. And so I took with my little 11-year-old brain and a little pen, and I just circled the paragraphs that I thought I agreed with more, mm -hmm. and then added up the columns. And it was something like 70% of the columns I had circled Bob Dole. And I said, okay, well, I guess that makes me, let's see, find here, Republican. Um, I didn't invest too much in that until the 2000 election, where I was like, obviously, very exciting election, a very close election, and mm -hmm. then the hanging chads and the whole recount. I think I, I got more and more interested at that point. Uh, and then 9-11, as you alluded to, happened my junior year of high school. Mm -hmm. Living in the New York area, my town lost a lot of people. Um, and my father worked in lower Manhattan at the time. And that was, I think, a seminal moment for me because it shifted from just being like, oh, being a big sports fan like I am, this is just another team sport where you put on the red jersey and you root right. um, and the other you boo the other team or whatever. 9-11 made me realize, oh, actually, whoever is governing the country, this really matters. Our policy really matters. You know, I, I was very glad that President Bush was in office and not potentially President Gore at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that was when politics went from kind of a rooting interest and in fun to something that I was more passionate about on a more substantive level. Um, and that's where right around then listening to some conservative talk radio by accident, I tuned in one day in the summer trying to listen to the Yankees game. I was at the pool trying to listen to the Yankees game and I thought it was a day game. In fact, it was a night game. I'd gotten it wrong. And the Yankees' flagship station back then was WABC in New York, which was Sean Hannity's station. Right. I was listening to Sean. I was like, well, hang on. This guy sounds conservative. This is interesting. So I started listening and kind of became an avid talk radio fan at the time. I Now I'm a talk radio host, although I'm, I would say, less conservative <laughs> maybe than I was back then, but still obviously solidly right of center. I'm a baseball junkie too guy and uh, one of my <clears throat> dirty pleasures is to uh, walk my dog in the afternoon. This is part of the California existence. Baseball starts out here at four o'clock as you've discovered. Yes. And isn't it great? <laughs> it's over by seven eight o'clock at night. It as is. As long I'm, as you can listen. I'm a night owl mm -hmm. generally and so I find it weird when it's like late night and I usually right. like watching the West Coast games having them on in the background and having nothing left to watch. Right. So I enjoy coming out to visit the West Coast just as someone who does news and writing and commentary i always feel like i'm behind the game here well, like, it's frustrating you i wake up, up morning and stuff's already moving so much stuff has happened i feel way behind the eight ball and i wake up almost in a sense of panic if i'm if i'm working it's like i've got to catch up completely and then right you know the show is soon right the all right. all the things that my timeline that i typically do for my various jobs and hats that i wear it's thrown off out here so the weather's beautiful Hoover's great. Stanford's amazing. I'm getting married out here in a couple weeks uh, in Northern California. Love visiting, mm -hmm. but I think I would go crazy living here, honestly. Right. So that listening to baseball in the afternoon when I walked my dog is how I came to really dislike Michael Bloomberg in this regard. In, 2000, <laughs> Why? in 2009, I think he was running for re-election. Uh, I think for his third term. Okay. And he just pulled out all the stops because he's going for a third term. He had to really kind of dig deep to get an extra four years. And guy, he advertised on Yankees games like nobody's business. I mean, you could barely escape a half inning without hearing an ad from Michael Bloomberg. Oh, interesting. So he spends like $110 million in this campaign. Well, if that was 09, it was a good Yankee season. It was least. a good Yankee season, but 
there's it's nice to have an escape from politics and just listen to baseball and there's friggin michael bloomberg every half inning <laughs> and just so i was just ready just a uh, sick of michael are bloomberg you a yankees point. fan i like um i follow the yankees uh for this reason the yankees are basically like greek mythology in this regard uh it is a study of man um and if you listen to a yankees broadcast Every damn game is just a crisis. It's, you know, baseball is a long slog. It's about winning two out of three at home and playing 500 on the road. But John Sterling and Susan Waldman mm-hmm. treat every game like it is extra innings of the seventh game World Series when they're in the third game of a road trip with Kansas City and it's kind of a throwaway game. But every game is a crisis for them. It's just, oh my God, if we lose this game, what happens for the rest of the season? It's just, it's, but that's part of the Yankees' existence, I think, because you just have these, you know, insanely high standards for that team. Yeah, and the, the fan mentality and Sterling I grew up listening to Sterling and he just actually this is interesting he just missst his first broadcast a break, yeah. in like 25 or 30 years right. or something he missed he missed a broadcast when his sibling of his died in 1989 mm-hmm. and did not miss a single game from the rest of the 89 season when I was four until he took a couple games off this season because he's in his 80s. Yeah. That is, as someone who talks every day for a living, I cannot fathom. Like, you get sick. Something really big happens in your life. You miss stuff occasionally. Right. Not John Sterling. I grew up, like, he's, look, he's a cartoon character, right? He's got that big voice. He's got the ridiculous home run calls for everyone, some of which are somewhat good, some of which are painfully terrible. But I'm never going to hate John Sterling because it was, like, my childhood listening to him. And that just bombastic, deep, theatrical voice. You did. How did you get into the world of commentary? I was the editor-in-chief of my middle school and high school newspapers, mm-hmm. and I assigned myself some of the op-ed work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, in 1998, would I have been in seventh or eighth grade, I wrote an op-ed calling for the resignation of President Clinton. So I was, you know, I was just <laughs> always interested in this stuff. Yeah. I actually, speaking of John Sterling, my career ambition was to be a sports broadcaster and specifically a baseball play-by-play broadcaster. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of play-by-play in high school. You've got, you got the voice for it. Thank you. Uh, well, and, and I did it in college. I, so I did it Four years of high school and, like, local cable access, basically. Did football, hockey, some basketball, some lacrosse, some baseball mm-hmm. with my broadcast partner, who is now a pro sportscaster. He is the radio play-by-play voice of the Vegas Golden Knights in the National Hockey League. And he's really good. He is really Dan Duva, super, super talented guy. Um, and then four years at Northwestern, I was sports director at WNUR, you know, Big Ten sports, called calling those mm-hmm. various games. Uh, and then I think my my highlight of my sports side of the career back when I was much younger was I did four summers in the Cape Cod Baseball League mm-hmm. for the Chatham A's, which were, you know, 44-game seasons plus playoffs every single night. It kind of was like a microcosm of a major league right. experience with unbelievably talented guys. I mean, I called the games of, like, the 05 season. There were probably nine guys on that roster who made it to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. Uh and those were, I mean, you can't get a better summer gig than that. I don't think anyone, I'll put my summer experience up against anyone when I was in college doing those games. So much fun. But I always had this fire burning in me on politics. Yeah. And ultimately it came down, my first job offer came out of the blue, and it was on the political commentary side of things, not sports. And mm-hmm. that kind of set me on this course. Very good. How long have you been at Fox? I joined Fox, well... 
depends on how you def- how you uh, kind of define these well, things. When did you first go on the air with Fox? So I would go one step earlier than that. I was an intern at Fox News in 2002, in 2003, 2004. New York or D.C.? New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hannity and Combs. Mm-hmm. back when it was both of them. Right. And then in 04, I was like a production assistant guest greeter at the Republican convention at Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. That was a very cool experience that I could go down a rabbit hole sure. talking about that. I first, so I was, I finished my intern style work for them in 04. So that would have been my sophomore year of college. Ended up making my first on-air appearance on Fox Business Network, I want to say 2010, when I was still living in Chicago, mm-hmm. there was a big scandal involving the governor, uh, Rod Blagojevich, at the time. And they, I had my weekend radio show, which was my first professional on-air gig in Chicago. Right. And some producer tracked me down out of the blue. I appeared on then uh, Eric Bowling's show and mixed it up and did relatively well. And they're always on the lookout for new people. Was that, uh, was that Blago putting the Senate seat up for sale? Among other things. Among other things. Yeah, he was uh, shaking down a children's hospital. <laughs> he was uh, trying to get hostile editors fired from the Chicago Tribune. It was, just, it was a trifecta of corruption. And uh, they had me on to talk about it and started doing more and more hits on the network 2010, mm-hmm. 2011, 2012. And then finally in 2013, they offered me a contract as a contributor. Mm-hmm. And I've been at Fox in some capacity, wow, for over six years now. Right, and the radio show you were doing with Marie Harf. Correct. But Marie Marie went back into politics, right? She did. So we actually did, it was originally, it was Benson and Harf. We did it for a full year. We did Benson and Harf, mm-hmm. Fox News Radio nationally. We did the show from here for a week, right? which was fun. Marie uh, has a friend in politics who is running for president, and she'd been sort of informally advising him and chatting with him, and he said, look, I'd like you to come and help run my campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and she decided... It was the moment to go back into that. So she's on the Seth Moulton campaign, um, and we'll see how that goes. I think that most people would agree that it is likely he will not be the nominee on the Democratic side, and if and when that campaign ends, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Marie maybe back in the saddle over at Fox. Um, Not sure about the radio show, but I think she'd come back uh, on the TV side, but we'll see. Good deal. Let's do a little Friday grab bag if you're up for it. I'm going to give you five topics and you choose which one you want to get into. Okay. Uh, the one obviously is Mueller. I'm sure you've been talking about that all week. Sure have. Uh, second topic is Trump and the Republican Party because I noticed when the president did his press avail after the uh, after the Wednesday testimony, he called it a great day for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious as to how the president and the Republican Party line up these days. Topic three, Boris Johnson, speaking of men with interesting haircuts. Uh, topic four is uh, election 2020, the debate coming up next week. And topic five is, as we talked about baseball, Mariana Rivera. Oh, my gosh. I would love to talk about all of those things. I have talked about all of those things on the air. I wrote a piece about, there was this nasty hit piece about Mariana Rivera from the right. Daily, Daily Beast. Beast that yeah. really annoyed me. And I went after them at Town Hall and on my show. I'm actually, maybe we can talk briefly about the UK and, and Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm always fascinated by... UK politics. I'm kind of an Anglophile. I'm half English, you know, my, in my background. Got a lot of friends over there. And we cover, especially with Brexit and all the turmoil, we've covered British politics a fair amount on my show. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine covers Westminster, and he does a lot of British TV. He comes on. He's got the best accent, so we have him on frequently. He's very good, too, Tom Harwood. And what strikes me as interesting about it is a lot of my friends 
there in the political realm are Brexiteers, right? They were pro-Brexit. And there was always this tension where you had Theresa May, who I thought was a a lovely person. I think she tried hard. But there was this mismatch where she was a Remainer, right? She voted to remain. She was part of the Remain campaign. Then she's the leader of the party that's supposed to preside, Mm -hmm. many of whose voters voted leave. Right. She had to preside over this thing, and she just couldn't get it done. I think that, you know, the the Remain people kind of suspected that she was still with them deep down, so they weren't going to make her job any easier. Right. And then the Brexiteers didn't trust her and felt like she wasn't really in it. Her heart wasn't in it. So it was just this untenable situation. And Boris, I think the Trump comparisons are, they fall short, right? So they both have the hair, right? They both like Brexit. They both have a populist streak. Yes. But ideologically, they're rather different in a lot of ways. Boris also was the two-term mayor of London, right? He has an enormous amount of executive experience. He was quite successful. He's also the foreign minister, right? right. This foreign secretary in the, right. the government. Like, Trump came in as this celebrity businessman. The CVs are just not on the same planet, really, of these two men. But I think because of the Brexit thing and the hair, people are like, oh, my, I've seen all the comparisons. I think a lot of it's silly. I don't know what to make of him. He seems a little kind of fun and jolly and self-deprecating. He seems a little scatterbrained sometimes. Um, Well, part of us, he looks just kind of rumpled at all times. He does. does, And like, you know, like Trump, he doesn't button his jacket. And, you know, when I went to, I saw a video of him meeting the Queen, he just... He looks kind of like an interloper at times, just like, what are you doing in this position? Who is this guy? But he, you know, you look at the cabinet shakeup that he yes. immediately oversaw, and it's like, okay, no, he means business. Right. He is like, we are going to deliver Brexit. It's going to happen, period. And the fact that he put, I, was it Michael Gove in charge of, uh, you know, looking forward to a deal-free Brexit, I think that probably sends a chill down the spine of Brussels collectively. And I think finally telegraphs to the Europeans, we are doing this. It's going to be up to you how painful you want it to be for both of us, but it's happening. Mm -hmm. Whereas May was always seeking, you know, a deal. I also wonder, and I made this, I made this comparison uh, on the air the other day, and I'm not sure if it's true. I don't know if this is insightful or not, but you do wonder, in terms of making a deal and coming up with some sort of compromise, could Boris Johnson sort of have the the same effect of only Nixon could go to China, right? Everyone knew he was an ardent anti-communist, so he was able to reach out his hand to the Chinese. Because Boris's bona fides on Brexit are unquestionable, right, mm-hmm. uh, unassailable, might he be given a little bit more leeway by the Brexit crew, the, Bre- the the Brexit public, mm-hmm. to make a few concessions that they wouldn't have accepted from a Remainer, for example. Right. So I don't know. It's going to be very hard for him. And then sort of lurking in the background of all of this is Jeremy Corbyn, who I find absolutely repugnant. And so I'm, I'm just sort of a little bit on edge because I, A, I hope Brexit happens and succeeds. That's what the people chose over there. But B, I hope it's not so wrenching and and painful that the British public says, well, we're going to punish the people who are responsible for this and sweep the other side into power because I think Corbyn is genuinely radical and and a bigot. And I mean, it's hard to imagine someone that hostile to so many important values, including America, um, being their prime minister. But I think one of the lessons we've learned globally in the last few years is you cannot rule out 
any outcome politically because things are volatile. That is true. Um, it is uh, one thing I've told myself I will not get into in 2020 is the prediction business. I gave a lot of talks for Hoover and got asked a lot of questions about the election, and I gave a lot of predictions. In, boy, in 16? In 16. And boy, I was off on a lot of stuff. So was everyone, right? I mean, that's the thing. I People do the self-flagellation thing on yeah. getting the Trump thing wrong, and I'm like, you guys, yes, we all got it wrong. Also, if it makes you feel any better, I was at Fox News headquarters in New York on election night 2016, part of the coverage. I was in the green room for most of the time because they bring you out. They have these panels that they bring in and out. So you get a few shots and then you're mostly watching the coverage and on Twitter and that sort of thing. And early in the evening, there were straight up Team Trump people at Fox already spinning to us why they had lost, who was to blame, mm -hmm. talking about the RNC, talking about the media, all this stuff. Right. Most of, if not all of, Trump world was convinced they were going to lose. It wasn't just the, you know, egghead experts. It was They thought they were going to lose. The Hillary people were telling me, oh, you know, we've got this. You know, it's we're hearing some of our numbers suggest it could be an eight-point margin nationally. Mm -hmm. Like, we are supremely confident it's going to be an early night, right? And then maybe 9 or 10 o'clock Eastern time, things really started shifting, and you, you started to see both sides kind of leaning in more and saying, hang on, what is going on right now? Right. The point is, I think of all the people on planet Earth who were shocked by the election of Donald Trump, mm -hmm. among them was Donald Trump. Yeah, it's, I'm sure you've seen the YouTube videos which compress election-like coverage. And, of course, about eight minutes they show. Yes. You know, they show a minute's worth of all the predictable returns coming in. Kentucky goes Republican and, you know, blue state goes blue. And then suddenly Florida starts looking like it's Trump and North Carolina goes Trump. And, oh, my goodness. Yep. <laughs> what is going on here? No, it was stunning. It was a stunning night that I will never forget. And one anecdote that, you know, if I ever write a autobiography or something. I'll have to put this in there. Someone I was sitting next to almost the whole night was George Will uh, in the green room. And, you know, I was very active on Twitter. So he was kind of asking me for information because I was getting it faster, right? And, you know, he was asking me to check in on certain house races. How's so-and-so doing? Uh, Bar Barbara Comstock, he was asking about in yes. Northern Virginia, uh, who won. She ended up losing in 18. Right. But, you know, Will was a very, very harsh critic of the president, still is, right. uh, as a conservative. I respect him a lot. I, I was a never-Trumper myself in 2016. I think I'm more forgiving on mm -hmm. some stuff in terms of policy than, than Will has been. I don't agree with him on everything. But he's a very smart guy and a total venerable figure in this business. And at the end of the night, I think everyone, everyone was just, out comes the president-elect with Melania and Barron's there, and everyone's just like, oh, my God, this just happened. Right. This is real. There were ch crowds of cheering people outside Fox News headquarters because, like, if you were rooting for Trump and in Manhattan, <laughs> there was one place to go, right. which was kind of Fox News because some of our opinion people obviously were very much on board for him. And at the end of the night, the speech is over. It's all happened. It's very late. And George Will turns to me. And he says, young man, thank you very much uh, for all of your information and help tonight. I have to go rewrite a column. <laughs> and I remember laughing um, because everyone had their, you know, columns filed about the lessons of Donald Trump's well, lost. loss. Right. People had whole books ready to go about that. And then it didn't happen. Another guy who was sitting right there the whole time was Steve Hayes, uh, mm -hmm. then of the Weekly Standard and Fox. And the moment where I started to realize 
Trump was quite possibly going to win the election, uh, Steve was from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And he knew Wisconsin politics at a very granular level. And he was looking, I was looking at the Senate race and Ron Johnson, who was written off by the party, cut loose, they right. stopped funding him. And I was saying, hey, Steve, I'm looking, I'm looking at these numbers here for Ron Johnson. Do you think he's going to win? Could, like, does he have a chance? And Steve said, oh, Ron Johnson, he's like, I know they haven't called it yet. Ron Johnson has won. He's like, I'm looking at this. There's, there's no way Johnson has lost. J- Johnson's won. I was like, holy cow. He said, no, Trump's going to win, I think. I said, Trump is going to win Wisconsin? He's like, yeah, I think it's going to be close, but I think he's got it. And he was right. And that was the moment where I was sort of like, ooh, this is my brain clicked over from this is far more interesting than any of us expected to this is happening. It's still sometimes surreal. So how do you think he does it a second time? And I know it's early to say this because we don't know who he draws next year. Yeah, I mean, the the way he does it is by being an incumbent with a very good economy, Mm -hmm. with an opposition that is out of the mainstream and doing crazy, scary things. That's the way he wins. Right. Um, I think he could. I mean, I think he's probably got a slightly better than not chance of winning, even though he's uh, struggling in certain respects i mean his numbers should be better based on just the economy alone right his numbers should be better but there's all this comportment stuff that i think does bother a lot of people but i'm not sure i would if i were him i wouldn't trade places with the democrats at this point because the incumbency advantage is huge he's going to have a huge amount of money this time around he got outspent two to one last time that will not happen this time he'll have a much more well-oiled sophisticated machine around him to help maximize you know get out the vote and that sort of thing and then if the other side is crazy right and and doing a bunch of crazy stuff which they seem to be doing on the regular now Mm -hmm. and if the economy is still strong that could once again line the stars back up for a second term then again it should be a red flag that in a lot of these head-to-heads which are still way too early and it's all all the caveats but when you're the incumbent with this economy and you're in like 43 44 range consistently Mm -hmm. that's definitely a worry if you're a trump supporter the one thing I'd caution listeners about polls and about Trump <coughs> taking on national samples, the election has parts of the sum, not some of the parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just doing crunching some numbers this week. Uh, he lost by California by about four and a quarter million votes. He lost New York by about 900,000 votes. He lost Illinois by about 900,000 votes, Massachusetts by the same. That's a $7 million deficit, a uh, $7 million vote deficit. And he lost the national election by 2.68 million votes, I think. So I would be willing to bet you right now he's probably going to lose the popular vote again, just based alone here on California, where he's just wildly, wildly unpopular. But you go into the battleground states, and it's a different picture for him. He's much more competitive. He's in a much more, you know, much more suitable position. So, well, especially yeah. especially if you've got uh, actually. So the aforementioned Ron Johnson, yes, senator from Wisconsin, was on my show yesterday here when I was doing the show from Hoover, and I asked him a question about that that moment in the second debate on NBC where they asked the 10 Democrats if they would support health care for, for illegal immigrants. Right. And they all raised their hand, yes. And it was just such a shocking yeah. moment to me. And I asked Johnson about that. And he started his answer. I felt at first it sounded kind of like a non sequitur. He was talking about Obamacare. I was like, wait, why are you answering about Obamacare? But the point that he came around to making was Obamacare was supposed to drastically reduce people's health 
costs, health mm-hmm. insurance costs. Right. That, of course, did not happen. The cost of health care keeps rising in this country. People are upset about that. Now you're going to come in as the other party and you're going to say, we want another bite at the health care apple. Your mm-hmm. costs keep going up. You're going to keep paying more. And now we want you on top of that as you're frustrated We're going to ask you to pay more out of your pocket in taxes to give people who entered the country illegally health care on the taxpayer's dime. He's like, that is going to make a lot of people very unhappy, Mm -hmm. including a lot of people in places like the state of Wisconsin, the state of Pennsylvania. Some of these positions, whether it's, you know, abortion, immigration, some of these cultural issues, all the Democrats have to do is be kind of like sensibly left of center and contrast that with Donald Trump and not go to Crazyville, but it seems like they've set up their their tent city in Crazyville in this primary, and we'll see how much that damages them in a lasting way. Uh, Guy, if you want to be an honorary California citizen, you cannot say illegal immigrant. You have to say undocumented immigrant. I do not want to be an honorary or real California citizen. And again, you're about 30 miles south from the city of San Francisco where the school board wants to literally whitewash George Washington. I saw that also just crazy completely not six i saw that was going to cost six hundred thousand dollars yes to paint over a mural and i'm like i'll do it for five hundred you know i could do it for about 20 bucks however much well, of- sh- sh- we should do it for five hundred thousand okay cause, right because that's what we are worth but it's less than six hundred thousand i don't know where they come up with that number and they admitted i guess we talked about this briefly i read about it it's like a 12 panel mural yes about george washington and a school named after george washington right. there are two of the panels that i think are seen as problematic because they're talking about native americans and slavery and that sort of thing which is just part of history right mm-hmm. we right. whatever like they can't just retouch even if you're going to argue for this i think they should not touch any of it they're not saying let's retouch those two panels they're just painting over the entire thing and they said one of the board members i saw said that's reparations I mean, it's, it's, we, it is too stupid to function. It is. I mean, he's George, like Bucky F. Dent. He is G- George F. Washington. You just oh, don't. Don't erase him. I'm a Virginian. Most of my family went to UVA, and Thomas Jefferson is, you know, in the headlights as well. There are people who want to take down a statue at UVA. Yeah, get him long, out. won't be long before he's off the $2 bill, so he's next. But, you know, if I'm running, if I'm the Democratic National Committee guy and I'm running the debates, I'm negotiating with the networks. You know, the first thing I'm going to negotiate for no more hands-up questions. They've done it. Yeah. They've done it, and CNN is not going to ask them. Right. Uh, which I think is unfortunate. I feel like why would you as a journalistic enterprise, just you know, hold your CNN jokes, but as a journalistic enterprise, why would you allow the party to dictate what you're asking? Dictate yeah. how you can ask questions? Right. That, to me, is a problem. I understand you got to play ball, and there's there's negotiations. That always happens. Yeah. But I feel like you know the party saying, you may not ask us questions like this. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem good. And the, and the only reason the Democrats are doing it is because if you ask for a show of hands on some of these crazy policies, you know the Joe Bidens of the world feel like they have to raise their hand because they don't want to anger the people right in front of them. They don't want to anger the base that supports some of these more outlandish policies. But then you've got this video record of Joe Biden hand in the air about illegal immigrant health care paid for by taxpayers. That's damaging. So I, I guess it's a collusion now between the networks and the DNC to limit uh, the damage and future damage. That debate is in Detroit, and it is at the Fox Theater in Detroit. And if you do a Google Maps search, uh, guy, you will find that that theater is about a 10-minute drive from the district office of Rashida Tlaib, Hmm. who represents part of Detroit. What do you think they're going to say about Congresswoman Tlaib if CNN has the nerve to ask about her? 
I part of it kind of would be what's the question, right? right. Um, you know, they could make a strong case about her anti-Semitism and that she's has some very dangerous ideas and terrible people that she surrounds herself with. And found the Holocaust, what is the word, refreshing or, or invigorating she, or something She said like she gets that. some sort of calming feeling. Calming when feeling she, from thinking of the Holocaust, yeah. Although the way she was, she said because it was, it, it sort of exemplified how my people actually yes. helped the Israelis. It's just, a, it's nonsensical and ahistorical. I think a lot of the Democrats would just pivot off to attacking Trump and the you know, the send them back or send her back chant about Omar and the, you know, the tweet about going back. I think they would pivot off to that stuff mm -hmm. um, because the Democrats really aren't held to account for bigots and crazies in their ranks the way Republicans are. Uh, the, the media, I'd be very surprised uh, to see any pressing or questions on Tlaib or Omar uh, in a way that would make it difficult for the candidates not to defend the squad. Uh, we'll see, though. They've got some fair journalists over there. Maybe they'll ask some tough questions on that. What I'm just not holding my breath. What do you make of AOC? What's your What's your take on her? Um, I don't like her. <laughs> I think that she's kind of a wild-eyed radical who doesn't know much. Mm -hmm. uh, I respect the fact that she took on this incumbent and did the work, and he didn't do the work, obviously, and she got herself elected. And right. I don't care that she was a bartender. Like, I think we need citizen legislators, and she's one of them. Um, I think that if I were in her party, she would be a source of endless frustration to me because she can't just let it alone when she should. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a little frightening. I think that the squad kind of is a a snapshot at where that party is headed in the future mm -hmm. um, when sort of the adults in the room won't be around anymore. Like the newer generation really is much more open to kind of full-blown let's remake everything, um, which is should be scary for people who think that actually America's overall flawed but pretty great. We don't need to be ripped up root and branch and started over. That, mm -hmm. um, that seems to be kind of the way that her rhetoric goes. It also, she just had this happy you know, make nice press conference today with Pelosi. They had their meeting and Pelosi s said all the nice things about her and said she's gracious and whatever. Um, that's not how they were talking two weekends ago. No. Brutal sniping back and forth. And it just reminded me, you know, when Pelosi was critical of the squad, the squad went straight to the identity politics, race card. Mm -hmm. You know, she's singling out, it's suspicious, she's singling out women of color. She's putting us in danger. Right. It, the left, the identity politics hard left has forgotten how to argue on the merits or in good faith. This is, this is mm -hmm. their standard operating procedure against conservatives. Right. And when they've all forgotten and they're all in the grips of this identity frenzy, that's all they know. And so they turn those guns against their own people too. And, you know, this is sort of the, the whirlwind that Pelosi and her team have created over years. Now the, now the, the fire is incoming. If it were a wealthy, if you and I were part of a wealthy dynastic family and I had a meeting with you, I could say very simply, young man, knock it off or you're out of the will. And you'd probably quickly change your behavior because <laughs> right. the old man was going to cut you off. I don't know what she can do to cut her off, though. Yeah, I mean, she can marginalize her. She can, I did enjoy how AOC, that this is part of the issue with her, right? She'll... Right. She'll come out and she'll make the Holocaust comparison and then pretend that she didn't Yes. and say it's a big lie. She's, she's a big-time gaslighter, uh, AOC, right? She, she doesn't – she thinks without 
she speaks without thinking or without information too often and then doesn't own up to stuff and tries to like some people will say you just described the president of the united states she's very trumpian mm -hmm. she's very trumpian in the other direction right there's no backing down her supporters backfill her misstatements with other stuff to try to justify it somehow um, the media, of course, generally is a little bit more invested in her and supporting her than they are the president. No question about that. Um, but yeah, she'll, you know, she she had a whole crew agitating outside Pelosi's office to put her on all these important committees because I'm AOC and I'm here to change things. And then a few weeks ago, she complained that they put her on all these committees, and she thinks that it might Too be just to keep do. her, yeah, to keep her right. busy. Um, these are not compatible things, and it's sort of weirdly conspiratorial, but I think there's a strong strain of this stuff that's very appealing on both ends of the spectrum. And um, you mentioned the president. You got AOC. I, <laughs> I hope they are not emblematic of our future, but I think uh, they might be. Right. So we're running up against time here. you got to dash off and do TV. Uh, we know that Donald Trump has been good for newspapers. Just look at circulations in the New York Times and the Washington Post. We know he's been good for TV. Look at ratings. Is he good for radio? I mean, you have three hours to fill Mondays through Friday. How much of that time is devoted to Donald Trump? It depends on the news cycle. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's he's good for media, which is, as you, it's sort of this amazing irony, right? Because he's constantly at war with the media in some ways About 95 or 98 percent of them voted against him probably so oh definitely right. and you know they profess to hate him he professes to hate them and but they all need each other exactly. and secretly sort of love each other uh in a love-hate kind of way mm -hmm. um yeah i i can only speak for myself I'm a Trump skeptical conservative. I didn't vote for him last time. I'm thinking about voting for him this time. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. He drives me crazy sometimes. I also unabashedly applaud him when he's doing good things, and he's done results-wise a lot of good things. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but, yeah, when especially you know, if I'm critical of the president, put out the phone number, the lines light up with supporters calling to defend him or to, to say, oh, I wish he wouldn't do that. I mean, he is... He is this giant, flaming mm. sun in right. the universe of American politics, and everything revolves around him. Right. When we get out of this relatively small universe of people who follow things like the Mueller hearing, I think 13 million people watched it on TV in a country of 300 million people. What do your listeners, what do they want to talk about? When they call in, what, what floats their boat when they call in? It depends, and it's sometimes difficult to predict. One thing that was kind of cool on today's show there was this story earlier in the week about this guy who wrote a piece in the New York Times how he became like a door dasher for a day, delivering food in Manhattan. Okay. And he talked about his experience with the economics of it and the tipping, and he got stiffed by two-thirds of the customers, zero tip from two-thirds of his deliveries. DoorDash which I, changed their policy. Yeah, which right. I, well, yeah. then the DoorDash policy ended up coming to light, and people got very upset about that, and mm -hmm. so they changed their policy. I found that all very interesting. There's also a, a piece, I think, in Politico by a guy arguing that tipping itself is a vestige of slavery and racist and should be eliminated, and we should instead raise the minimum wage and get rid of tipping altogether. So this combination of factors was interesting to me. I used to work in restaurants to make a little bit of money in high right. school and college, and so I just did an hour today, had no idea how it would go. Mm -hmm putting these stories out there, talking about tipping, and just asking people about their thoughts on tipping. How they tip, Do they? are they people who make their living through tips? Should it be abolished? Is this fair? Do you tip 20%? What types of people do you or do you not tip? 
And I said, we'll see what happens. It's not a political topic at all. Every phone line was full. Yes. People went crazy for this topic and the calling in from all over the country. We got an international call. People. So it's funny, you know, you can have like the hottest topic in the world, seemingly in the D.C. bubble. It's Mueller or something. You right. put out a question. People will call in or what have you. Then you just put out this sort of broader cultural question and everyone can relate to it. Yes. And and the and the phones just light up, which was that was very fun. That's the opening scene from Reservoir Dogs, where the uh, crooks are sitting around the table in the restaurant, and uh, Mr. Pink is supposed to give the tip to the waitress. Mr. Pink will not give a tip, and they go into Tarantino like five minutes of why he thinks tipping is a ridiculous practice. There were one or two callers today who agreed yes. with Mr. Pink, but a lot of folks who make their living with tips called in. Some restaurant owners called in. It was it was actually interesting. People saying, "No, no, tipping is important. Here's why," uh, which I tend to agree with, personally. Good deal. Okay, final question. Uh, just sum up. Give me the argument for listening to the Guy Benson show every day. Why should people tune in? Well, you know, just give us a try. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I I try to I strive to be a fair-minded, intellectually honest, center-right, Trump skeptical conservative who calls them like I see them. I mix in some sports. I mix in some cultural stuff that's in and some pop culture and some, some fun. Mm -hmm. It's mostly politically driven. Uh, some monologues, audio, a lot of guests. If you're a fan of you know the Fox News universe, we have Britt Hume all the time. We have Chris Wallace regularly. We'll have Brett Bayer on the show. Some of my friends from Fox are, are regulars on the program as well, which is fun. And so... Uh, I just want it to be kind of an alternative. There's a lot of fire-breathing, table-pounding, right-wing radio, mm -hmm. some of which I've listened to for a long time. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not my style. I try to have mostly, try to stay kind of good-humored, a little cerebral maybe from time to time, have some fun, have some laughs. And it's just, it's a little bit different than the standard fare that you get in a lot of conservative talk radio. And... I'm hopeful that's the type of thing that might appeal to a younger audience as well. Mm -hmm. I think younger conservatives and younger people think differently than generations ahead of us, and I'm trying to sort of bring great ideas to a different audience and maybe have people who are traditional talk radio, conservative talk radio listeners just get a flavor of how it can sound from a different perspective. Okay. You've got to run. You've got TV to do. I do. Hey, thanks for doing the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is great. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows straight to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Guy Benson is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at GuyPBenson.com. That is at GuyP, P as in Peter, Benson. For more on The Guy Benson Show, you can go to radio.foxnews.com. As I mentioned, Guy has his own website. That is guybenson.org. That's Benson spelled B-E-N-S-O-N, by the way. Anything else i got to plug? GuyBensonShow.com is where people can go to figure out how to listen. Also, our first hour of every show is free on the podcast. That's iTunes or GuyBensonShow.com. Good stuff. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or 
Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.